You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord and Master of my life, deliver me from the spirit of slothfulness, meddling, ambition, and vain talk. But bestow upon me, your servant, the spirit of purity, humility, patience, and love. Yes, O Lord and King, grant that I may be aware of my own sins, and not to judge my brother, for thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, mm-hmm. and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. What's that prayer, Father? That is the prayer of St. Ephraim that is commonly used in the Byzantine liturgy during the season of Lent. Oh, yes. nice. It's a lovely It's prayer. very nice. Yeah. Yeah, so you can yeah, look it up online, the, the prayer of St. Ephraim, O Lord and Master of my life. Cool. Deliver me from the spirit of slothfulness, meddling, ambition, and vain talk, and so on. You'll see a lot of different translations. But there it is. Yeah. But here we are on the third Sunday of Lent. Third Sunday of Lent. Yeah. Exodus chapter 20. Give us our biblical text here, Annie. Yeah. The first reading this weekend, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. The mm. responsorial, I know, right? The responsorial psalm is from Psalm chapter 19. The gospel, we're moving into the gospel of John this weekend, chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. And the epistle is from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Okay, here we go. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 17. It's a bit of a long text, but we're not skipping anything today. Nope. And it's a text that you're all going to be very familiar with. Um, and, uh, so here we have it and don't fall asleep at mass this Sunday when they start reading it. I memorized this whole thing when I was a kid. Well, good thing. Good. And, uh, so let's have it here. Exodus chapter 20, open your Bibles. Everybody's got their Bible open. I got to get there actually. (laughs) Exodus chapter. (laughs) Yes. Exodus chapter 20, verse one and following. Here we go, Annie. All right, here we go. In those days, God delivered all these commandments. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that place of slavery. You shall not have other gods besides me. You shall not carve idols for yourself in the shape of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters beneath the earth. You shall not bow down before them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God inflicting punishment for their father's wickedness on the children of those who hate me, down to the third and fourth generation, but bestowing mercy down to the thousandth generation on the children of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave unpunished the one who takes his name in vain. Remember to keep holy the Sabbath day, Six days you may labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. No work may be done 
then, either by you or your son or daughter or your male or female slave or your beast or by the alien who lives with you. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that you may have a long life in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male or female slave, nor his ox or ass, nor anything else that belongs to him. All right. Well, as you say, rather familiar passage. Yes. But um, did God just sort of like randomly decide that he should like give these commandments, impose these commandments on the people? Or was there like something that led to this? Well, of course, there's something that leads to it, Annie. But the, I, you know, the question, why are we even reading this at mass? I mean, isn't this Old Testament stuff? You know, and why do we cherry pick these commandments, the Ten Commandments? as being applicable to the Christian life. Well, you know, yeah, a lot of the, of the Old Testament yeah. is, you know, some might say thrown out like the baby with the bathwater, right? Mm-hmm. Well, not not so fast. So let's talk about that for a moment in, in terms of how God instructs his people and instructs us. And I think this will be very helpful to understanding all of this in relationship to how we live out our Christian life in accordance with the commands of the Lord. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so what leads, what leads up to this? This is the first question, right? Yeah. A lot, if, if you, when you're reading your Bible, if you can begin by just asking yourself questions, who, what, why, where, and when you're going to be 99% along the way of reading most of your Bible without really struggling much. I mean, you're going to get more out of it by just simply stopping asking questions. So Annie asking questions is when she's here, ask questions. I'm supposed to be the one that knows, but I don't know how the answer is. So at least we can find out together which is great. Who, what, why, where, and when, right? Who's writing this text? Moses. Uh, uh, who, what, what, well, what, I don't know. What, what do you want to know about it? I don't know. When's this happening? Why is it happening? All that stuff. All these things are helpful. So we can simply flip our Bibles a few pages and kind of see what's going on here by just looking at your headers of your, of your paragraphs or the head of your pages, wherever, however your Bible's laid out. And you're going to see that chapter 14 and 15 is the crossing of the Red Sea. So they have now left Egypt. All of the miracles which took place at the hand of Moses are now done in the sense of all those things, you know, the, the his staff and the, the, the Nile turning to blood and all these things have already transpired. Now they've left Egypt. The Passover has taken place and they're, they journey to Mount Sinai. And then they arrive at Mount Sinai, um, and uh, in chapter 19, verse 1, they arrive at Mount Sinai, right there, chapter verse 1 and 2. And so that is the, the immediate context for chapter 20 in which the commands are given, right? So then the question is, why are they at Mount Sinai? Because I think this is misunderstood a lot of times, and it would help us to understand what, what God does, why he does what he does in giving them the commandments. And that takes us back to a little bit earlier text in in the book of Exodus. So flip back with me 
to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. This is God speaking to Moses, instructing Moses what he's going to say to Pharaoh when he goes to Pharaoh. Okay? Mm-hmm. So this is his first instruction to him. Verse Chapter 3, verse 18. And they will hearken to your voice. That's the Lord speaking to Moses. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him. Now, what's he going to say to him? The Lord, the God of, he- of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now we pray you, let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. That's it. Stop. This was the purpose of the Exodus. This is why... This was the original purpose. This is why God is 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 intervening in the life of Israel at this moment in the context of their slavery in Egypt. And the request is not, hey, Pharaoh, you know, we're tired of being your slaves. We want to get out of here and we like to take a vacation in Palestine, you know. We want to go to the land flowing with milk and honey, set up the uh, you know, the temple and pull out the Mai Tais and really enjoy life. This is not the request. The request at the beginning of the book of Exodus is simply to let them go three days. Wow. And there they would come to Mount Sinai. And there they would worship God. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why is it that they have to leave Egypt? So there's, okay, well, I should say there, there's the purpose. Right? The whole purpose of God intervening in the life of Israel is so that they might worship him. She's going to give us a little indication, a little key that's going to unlock why this text is connected with our gospel text today. All right, but we're not there yet. So that's the original purpose. Why do they have to leave Egypt in order to do this? Well, because Mount Sinai is a really big mountain and God only comes down on mountains and therefore, no, they have to leave Egypt because why? The worship which God is going to call them to do is going to be very uh, bloody. Yeah. They're going to be sacrificing animals. Well, why can't they do that in Egypt? Well, because in Egypt, the Egyptians are worshiping animals, right? They're they're animal worshipers. So he's going to take all the gods of Egypt and tell the Israelites to slit their throats and then part them out, burn them to God and eat them. Not going to work very well. Yeah. It's not going to work well in Egypt. Okay. This is like not popular worship. You know, very unpopular in, in secular America to be Catholic. Well, it's super unpopular to be a Jew in Egypt. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you're doing all sorts of things that aren't cool. So so there you have it. That's the original purpose of them leaving. So when they come to Mount Sinai, they come to Mount Sinai for this purpose. Yeah. Ultimately, this whole thing is going to lead them to the promised land. In fact, here in chapter three, God is going to say, Look, Moses, I know what's going to happen. Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. Listen to this right here. Verse 19. I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty. Look, Moses. Okay. This is what I want you to go tell him. It's all I'm asking, you know. Let me go down. Let let the people just take a three-day break, okay? And they're going to worship and they come back to be your slaves. But I know this guy's a bonehead, right? He's testadura, hardhead. He's not going to listen to me. So I have to do a bunch of miracles. And the thing, ultimately, you're going to get, don't worry, you're going to take your vacation and uh, on the, on the you know, coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's going to happen, I promise. But in the meantime, here's what's going to happen. So your whole point is going to Sinai is for worship. Ultimately, that's your whole purpose of going to the promised land. It's whole purpose of setting up the temple. 
is for worship, right? But that worship can only be done in the context of freedom. And this is super important. We're talking about the Ten Commandments. And it's super important. We're talking about worship in general. Worship is what we call, I'm thinking about a book I have, but unfortunately I am camping out in my church kitchen right now because we're doing what I think it's right. It's like right over here. Bingo. Check it out. You have yeah. it. Yeah. Nice. There it is. Okay. And I, 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 I'm probably not going to be able to uh, find, but I'm going to find right here in this way, this actually, this was legitimate. I, I did when I was talking, I was looking over my shoulder. I, my eye went to this blank book and it, and it always opens this page. Cause this is the best paragraph in the whole book. My favorite paragraph, <laughs> Cardinal Ratzinger, spirit of the liturgy. Ah, and he yes. says this, what is worship? Okay. So this is important for us, right? What are they supposed to do at Mount Sinai? Let life be a three days journey so that they can, they can sacrifice. They can worship me, right? What is worship? What happens when we worship? In all religion, sacrifice is at the heart of worship. But this is a concept that has been buried in the debris of endless misunderstanding. The common view is that sacrifice has something to do with destruction. It means handing over to God a reality that is in some way precious to man. Slit the throat of the calf, right? Yeah. It uh, uh, Now this handing over presupposes that it is withdrawn from the use of man. And it can only happen through its destruction, definitive removal from the hands of man. But this immediately raises the question, what pleasure is God supposed to take in destruction? Is anything really surrendered to God through destruction? And one answer is that destruction always conceals within itself the act of acknowledging God's sovereignty over all things. But can such an act really serve God's glory? And Ratzinger says, obviously not. True surrender to God looks very different. It consists in the union of man and creation with God. Belonging to God has nothing to do with destruction on being is rather a way of being. That is why St. Augustine could call the true that could, could say that the true sacrifice is the chivitas day. That is love transformed mankind. Bingo. Hold on to this for a second. Love transformed mankind. This is what Ratzinger is going to say is authentic worship. Okay. Or the result of authentic worship. The divinization of creation, the surrender of all things to God. That is the purpose of the world. That is the essence of sacrifice and worship. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now I come back to this whole thing as what was the purpose of the Exodus? It is to that that Israel might once again worship God. And that word worship is better known in our modern English language or concepts as our love for God. This is what, this is, our love for God is what worship is, okay? It is the surrender of myself and all that I am, all that I have, my whole being to the one who gave me life. Um, but this, but this then requires something more. And that is love must always be exercised in the atmosphere of freedom. Love can never be what's the word annie compelled uh, forced yeah it's not a dictator slave relationship slave master slave relationship worship can't happen in in the context of slavery it can only happen in the context of freedom which is why israel's got to get out of egypt not only because they would be killed for having killed the gods but but also that they might be free to love yes 
And this helps us understand then when they come to Mount Sinai now in chapter 19, in chapter 19, we get this, this interesting exchange that happens now. I'm going to come. Yeah, I'm going to come down here to verse 16, chapter 19, verse 16. I'm skipping a bunch of stuff. You can go back and read that in chapter 19. It is very valuable as a, as a preparation for what I'm about to say, but on the morning of the third day, there were thunder and lightning and thick cloud upon the mountains and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. There it is. The union. Let me go back to Ratzinger now. What does he say here? He says, that is why St. Augustine could say the true sacrifice is the Chivitas Day. That is, love transformed mankind. The divinization of creation, the surrender of all things to God. That is the purpose of the world. That is the essence of sacrifice and worship. So we can say now that the goal of worship and the goal of creation as a whole are one and the same. Divinization, a world of freedom and love. Yeah? And, and I skipped what I wanted to say, which is, yeah, belonging to God. Here we go. Belonging to God has nothing to do with destruction or no, it's rather a way of being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is it, it it's it's a way of being which is a communion between God and man. Yeah. And this is what is called for here, this meeting between God and man, in which Israel is meant to worship God, and God is going and that is love God, and God is going to love Israel back. And when God loves Israel back, he gives us the Ten Commandments. That is, he gives us an instruction by which we might live properly in relationship to him and relationship to one another. Okay. Now, remember Jesus's instruction in the when he's challenged as to what is the most important of the command. Which, yeah, turn with me in Matthew chapter twenty-two. Very quick. Hold Exodus, Matthew chapter twenty-two. I know you know where I'm going here. Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, yeah, 36. Teacher, chapter chapter 22, verse 36. You there, Annie? Yep, I'm here. Teacher, which is the great, which, which is the great commandment, greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets, right? Well, he's simply quoting their Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, in which God sums up for, for people what all of this is it, it means. So if you take the commandments that were given here in chapter 20, they really divide into two sections, right? The first section from verse 1 through verse, what, 11 is how they relate to God, yeah? And then the 11 and following is how they relate to man. These are the two commands. And when we're talking about relate, relate, we're talking about how do I live my life in relationship to the other that I might give my life to them rather than take my life from them. Take their life from them, right? Whether they mean selfish, I might pour out my life. So the commandments are divided in two ways: loving God and loving neighbor. That's how that's how they're divided. Well, why is that important here at this moment in Exodus? Is because this is what's screwed up in, in Egypt. 
This is what's screwed up because of sin. This is what's screwed up because of paganism. This is what's screwed up because of pantheism. And that is when we detach ourselves from who God is, from the worship of the true God, we be, and we begin to make gods out of the things of this earth, we begin to abuse them as our first parents did. Yeah, and so the whole purpose of the Exodus is the restoration of mankind in the image and likeness of God, in which he lives out his vocation of image and likeness in relationship to our Heavenly Father and relationship to one another. Yeah, that's the kind of, that's that, that's that, like uh, the love sandwich, right? It, uh, God pours out his life into us, giving us life. Then we pour our life into him. Then he pours out his life into us. And we pour our life, our life to him. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We offer you what is your own. In all and for the sake of all. This is the offertory in the Byzantine liturgy. In, in, in the Roman Catholic liturgy, at least today, you say, what, what is your offertory prayer that you say? Um, fruit of the vine, work of human hands. Um, the We offer it for ourselves. No, oh, Annie. I'm, I'm trying to, you threw I'm me. Taking, I'm not a priest. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. For through your goodness, we have received the bread that we, we offer, offer to you. you. Yeah. Right? And so it thus begins this, what Father Hezekiah likes to call the love sandwich, right? So God has bestowed the gift to us in the gift of creation. Hmm. We then take that creation, we make it into this bread, and we offer it back to him. He then gives it back to us divinized. Right. And then yeah. having received this gift, we then offer ourselves back to him in the service of the church. And so this is all this back and forth, this love sandwich, right? That's what's going on here. This ensuing of this relationship with God's people now have been freed from bondage of slavery, living in an atmosphere of freedom. They are free to do what they're meant to do, and that is to love God and to love their neighbor. Okay. Well, can you answer the second question that you asked at the outset here, which is, why do these still serve as the basis yeah. for Christian morality? Yeah, yeah, because they because yeah. they because they are the pre preparation for they are the beginning of this worship. I was thinking about this as I was thinking about being together today. I says, don't we say in the old timey the old timey wedding vows with my body, body I worship thee. I yeah. worship thee. Yeah. And I said, well, that's interesting. Because we've lost a sense of this, of, of this word worship. Well, what do we mean by I worship thee? Do you really mean, do you think, was that what they, they intended? Like, because we think about worship. What do you worship? God. I worship God, God alone. I, I, I you know, and I have Velatria and Ultra Doula and the Doula this. And, uh, we got to make all these distinctions. We have Jesus and the Virgin Mary and the saints and all that. And yep. there we go, and we go full-blown, blow the whole thing out of the water, and we say we worship our spouse. What? You can't say you worship your spouse because you should worship God and God alone. Is it true that for 2,000 years in Western Christianity, you use these vows, that somehow they rejected the Ten Commandments? No! It's because the word worship is misunderstood. The word worship means love with my and total giving of myself to the other with my body. I do love thee. I will lay my life for you. I will worship you in the proper sense of that word because that's what it means when we turn to God and do this for him because he's done this for us. Yeah. 
That's cool stuff, right? That is cool stuff. That's cool stuff. This is the the root and the foundation of what it means. But Annie, we can't go on from this until we go ahead and take care of our Protestant brothers and sisters who are all saying, you Roman Catholics. Well, I'm not Roman Catholic. I'm Melkite Greek Catholic. I'm Byzantine. But I'm Catholic nonetheless. You Catholics, you worship your statues. You worship your icons. Idol worshipers. You're you're a bunch of idol worshipers, you sickos. You reject yeah. the commandments of God. So we, Annie, it doesn't really have to do with our gospel, but we have to do a little, a little hobby horse, a little side thing just to take care of, I'm going to talk, because I know we've got a lot of non-Catholics in our, they're going to say, what's this crazy Catholic priest going to say about these passages in the Bible? We want to hear. So for our Roman Catholic, no, sorry, for our Protestant brothers and sisters that are here in this Bible study, uh, we're going to take care of this business about no graven images. Yes, please. We have. Well, to. it'll be good for the Catholics in here too yeah. to be able to give an answer. Yeah, I think I think so because yeah. because we have to realize where this is given, the context is given, and that's the context is going to going to unlock the whole business. Right, a text without a context, no text at all. You read this out of context, and you look at your local Catholic church, and you be like, dude, you guys reject the Ten Commandments. But as a matter of fact, we don't. Because we're reading it in church today with a bunch of statues around us. What? Are they just that mind-melted that they don't realize that in the very moment they're saying these words that they're, they're contradicting this? No, not at all. In fact, it's a mind-melted, you know, uh, 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 well, I'll be nice, okay? Others who have a problem with what the church teaches on this subject. Because, look, it's not as though we dealt with it. We've been dealing with this for 2,000 years. From the, the, the Jews were saying this against the early the early Christians that had, had images, okay? Why we had this the Seventh Ecumenical Council, why St. John of Damascus stood up and hammered the heretics for being iconoclasts and saying we couldn't have images in our churches. And the church came together and said, yes, we can have images for many reasons, one of which is that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And therefore, because of this, he has a depiction of himself that he has carved into flesh. And therefore, yes, we can. Not only that, but because we have a misunderstanding of this text itself, which is the context business. And that is that Israel's been instructed to do this, that is not to make graven images, simply because of what's going on in Egypt. And what's going on in Egypt has everything to do with what Israel's being called to do, and that is worship. This text is misread when it's not read in its totality. And its totality simply requires us to read another verse or two on to understand what's being said. What's being said is that you are not to make graven images and bow down to them. Right? Look, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of You shall have no other gods before me, stinking Egyptians. Right. You shall not make yourself a graven, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water beneath the earth. Period. Right? There's your commandment. No, it's not the commandment. The commandment continues. You shall not bow down to them and worship them. Okay? That's what you're not supposed to do. Oh, Father Hezekiah, wait a minute. Are you saying we can have graven images as carved images? 
or or depictions of things of heaven and earth, that's okay. We just shouldn't bow down to them. That's taking a little bit of a slice of this commandment. It's not really getting the heart of the matter. Well, it does get to the heart of the matter. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why it gets to the heart of the matter. Because in Exodus chapter 25, that is turn the page of your Bible, Exodus chapter 25, verse 18, and God says, you shall make images of things in heaven. And he's going to go on to tell him to make all sorts of images of things on earth also, right? Mm -hmm. There's the difference. It, it, God doesn't have a problem with graven images, does he? Oh, yes, he does. No, actually, he doesn't. God actually loves images of things of heaven and on earth. And you can see that very clearly in Numbers chapter 21, in which God actually uses graven images to heal people. Yes. Ex Numbers chapter oh, 21. In which they complain about the manna. Yes. Verse uh, 5 and following. They they murmur against God. Yeah. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents in verse 6. And in verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, Moses, make a graven image. What? Yeah. All right. I don't think I have to beat this dead horse. I think it's dead already, right? Yeah. What are they not supposed to do? They're not supposed to act like the Egyptians, right? The depiction of things of heaven and on earth is not what is being prohibited in Exodus chapter 20. Otherwise, God has broken his own commandments. And that's insane. If you think God can break his own commandments, go become a Muslim. Because the Muslims believe in this kind of God. It, he's he's the all willing, yeah. has, there's no reference to what is true or not true. It's just the, the power of the divine will, which is the all-consuming God. Yeah, but we don't believe in this. God himself is truth and reveals that truth to us. He can't contradict himself. Yes? Sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses. Can't contradict yourself. Okay, uh, um, uh, but, but, but there you have it. That's that's what's going on there. And I'll give you an example now of the fiery serpent. The fiery serpent's a great one because the great, holy, wise, righteous king, Hezekiah, comes into this story in, this, in 2 Kings. Check this out. Many of you don't know this. Very interesting passage. Very helpful. 2 Kings chapter 25. 2 Kings chapter 25. Yes. No. What am I crazy? Chapter 18. <laughs> chapter 8. There it is. There he is. In the third year. Second Kings chapter 18. Verse 1. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah the Great, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 20. Da, 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 da. Verse 3. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 4, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. This is what we've been talking about going on during just before the Babylonian exile. Things are bad in Jerusalem. They're worshiping false gods. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel had burned incense to it, it was called Nehushtan. Did you know this passage, Annie? 
Maybe you did. No. You knew it because you're like radio personality, Catholic radio personality. A lot of people recognize this. So the fiery serpent they sent, sent that becomes a healing image in the desert by people having to look on it with faith becomes an idol. And the people begin bowing down and worshiping as a false god. I should do some research about this, this god, Nehushtan, whatever his name is. I bet you he's a Canaanite god or an Egyptian god. I didn't have a chance to look it up, but you can look it up on your own. But this is the, this is the problem, okay? God is not telling them that they're not to depict things of heaven and earth. He's going to tell them to carve palm trees into the temple. He's going to tell them to have lilies and gourds and angels with cherubim, a, yeah. cherubim with a flaming sword and the whole business and the chair the, the 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 carve the ark of the covenant and build the temple okay please people but what were we not supposed to do you're not supposed to worship it as a god right this is the problem it's not a god your statue of the virgin mary catholics big surprise here Okay, Protestant brothers and sisters, I'm going to surprise my, my Catholic brothers and sisters. Okay, ready? I know it's a big surprise to you guys. That statue is actually not the Virgin Mary. It's a depiction of the Virgin Mary. Yeah? Hmm. Yeah, wow. I know that's a big surprise. Right? Okay. We Shut. don't worship We don't worship pieces of wood and rocks. They're dead things. No, but the dead things that we've taken and, and we've We've shaped into things that have an earth. Remind us as the serpent and there in the in, in numbers, just as the cherubim or the lids remind us of the things of heaven and earth by which God has given his life to us. And we worship him and him alone. Yes, that's what Catholics do. Okay. So I'm sorry. That was a hobby horse. Woo, over there. Now we can come back it. to our Sunday gospel reflections. Okay. Well, can you, I mean, I know we need to get to the responsorial Psalm before yeah. we can really talk about the gospel, but. Can I just what? kind of PS on that thing? That's oh, why yeah. this is given such an important part of the 10 commandments. Well, that's why worship is such an important part of the 10 commandments. Cause that's the purpose of the Exodus. Yeah. That concludes everything we're seeing, ties it back to what we were saying earlier. Purpose is to worship God, to love him and to enter this relationship of love by which what is his becomes mine and what he has is to, is, is eternal life and that becomes mine. And that's what God wants of us. Yeah, okay, well, that's a step toward the answer to my question, which oh, is okay. why was this passage paired with the cleansing of the temple, which is what we are going to read in the gospel? Let's take a look at that. But, but before we do, Annie, before we do. Can we look at Psalm 19? Yeah, absolutely. Which is our responsorial psalm. And we don't have to look at much, but it might open up a little hobby horse for a moment. I love your Lord, hobby horses. Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. That is, God's word is everlasting life. Yeah? And when his word comes to dwell in me, I receive the gift which he has, which is eternal life. Yeah, which is tying nicely to what I just said, and will tie nicely to the temple cleansing. Also, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. So here's my hobby horse on this one. The Ten Commandments were not like a dictatorship. It was God saying, hey, here's how to live your life so that you might live. Yeah, 
as I've said this before, it's like the 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 um the car manual, right? Mm-hmm. Do these things and your car's gonna be a happy car. Do these things and you're gonna have a happy life. You're gonna live as you were designed to live in the image and likeness of God. And so um and so when we do that, the law of God becomes not an obligation but an invitation. And this is so important to us when we consider the laws of the church that those that, uh, 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 it, we almost it's almost like we 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 approach the teachings of the church much like maybe a Jew in the Old Testament might have approached the laws of God in which they did treat them as in this kind of slave master relationship in some ways that Jesus came to free us from and restore us to our proper relationship with our heavenly Father that these laws are given not as dictatorial laws but as ways in which we might find happiness. The laws of the church, likewise, the laws of Christ, the laws of Christianity are not a dictatorship. You, okay, and you can you can quote me on this one. Just please give me some context. You don't have to go to church on Sunday. You don't have to go to church on Sunday. You can go to hell if you want. If you want to go to heaven, if you want to live in your father's home, then there are ways to do that. The church's teachings are not to be, a, be received as the have-tos. You don't have to. You can sleep in on Sunday morning, but the result of that is that you won't have communion with the resurrected Lord. If you don't have communion with the resurrected Lord, <laughs> you're going to die. Yeah? Not because God hates you, but because God loves you and wants in an atmosphere of freedom for you to do what is ne- what is what is needed, right? So, so I think it's a big reality check for us during the Lenten season regarding fasting, prayer, and and uh, almsgiving. I'm just going to say it very quickly. Fasting is not okay. Yeah, they say, you have to fast on Ash Wednesday and Friday. Well, I mean, at least you have to do that. Otherwise, what really? At least you got to do that. Otherwise. What are you really a living as a member of the family? Right? So you're going to increase your prayer life. Not because you have to, you don't have to in that sense, but, but you have the invitation to that, to begin to live now what you want to live for all eternity. Right? The church calls us for almsgiving. Oh, but, oh, gee whiz, I could use the money to go down and, and you know, whatever. It's an invitation. Tithing, the first 10% of my income is an invitation. You don't have to. You're not, uh, it's up to you. But if you want to receive eternal life, then this is how the fathers of the church, the great wisdom of the church has given this gift to us to say, do you want to live? Here, live. Here's an invitation. If you've been saying, well, wait a minute now, I don't really can't do that. The almsgiving thing, I'll put a couple bucks in the thing for taking care of the poor during Lent. Well, all right. I mean, but you have an invitation to go all the way to embrace the kingdom. Embrace the kingdom now, what you want for all eternity. And I really encourage you to do this. And I know that almsgiving is a hard one for us Americans, but coupled with prayer and fasting, it's, it's it's the whole business. I'm saying, do you want it now? Do you want the kingdom which is to come now? And if you want it now, lay hold of it now. There's my challenge to our Institute of Catholic Culture family. Annie, let's take a look at the New Testament, the gospel. Gospel. 
Yep. Head over to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter two. Yeah. I'll put my book back lest I lose it. Yeah. Don't lose yeah. that. It's an important book to keep. John, chapter two, huh? Yep. John, chapter two. So here we are jumping out of Luke because, well, jumping we're out in of Lent. Yeah. So, so we're going into our Lenten readings now. John, chapter two, verse 13, right? Verse 13 is where we are starting. Here we go. I am there. All right, here we go. Since the Passover of the Jews was near, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple area those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, as well as the money changers seated there. He made a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and oxen and spilled the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and to those who sold doves he said, Take these out of here and stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples recalled the words of scripture, Zeal for your house will consume me. And this, or sorry, at this the Jews answered and said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jews said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they came to believe the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. While he was in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, many began to believe in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus would not trust himself to them because he knew them all and did not need anyone to testify about human nature. He himself understood it well. Oh, I, I hate that you translation. Like the lectionary version? That translation. It's one word that got me at the end. We'll hit it at the end here before we leave because I'm not going to get into this too much today. But I'm sorry for making such a disgusting. Look. But but that uh, human nature business. That's all. Uh, that's all. Uh, Mamsy Pamsy modernism. Oh sure. Okay. Yeah. Good. Well, I look forward to hearing about that later. But um, I want to ask you about because obviously this is pretty early on in the Gospel of John. Um, Passover mentioned twice in this passage and Passover's, I mean, I know it's a significant feast, but like pretty significant for the gospel of John particularly, right? Can you talk about that? It is. It is. There's three times in the gospel of John that Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This is the first of those three. Of course, John's whole gospel is about Passover. Okay. So um, uh, which we need to remember about the gospel of John. Oh my gosh. There's a lot to remember the gospel of John, but, but maybe the first and most important principle is this, that what is covered in the prologue, that is John chapter one through verse one through 18, which mm-hmm. we all know quite well from the old days, the old Latin mass, right? Yep. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him was nothing was made in him. was life, light, light of men, light shine in the darkness, darkness, and so forth like that. You should memorize that text, by the way. But that is like, one commentator said, like a pebble in a pond. 
the mm. gospel being the pond and the prologue being the pebble, that every theme that is developed in the gospel is contained in short form in the prologue of John. Um, and uh, and so in this case, regarding Passover, of course, Jesus's whole passion narrative and resurrection is going to be in the context of Passover because Jesus is the Lamb of God, right? John chapter 1 um, um, uh, verse 36. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the lamb of God. Yes. Um, and so, um, in the gospel of John, Jesus is identified as the lamb of God. Of course, the lamb of, uh, is the one who preserves God's people during the Passover. And in order to understand this, you got to go back and read, I'm not going to do this with you right now um, because of time, but I'm just going to give you the pointers to go back and read the first Passover in Exodus chapter 12. Okay. So what is the lamb of Passover is the one that is slaughtered. It is consumed by the family to sustain them for the journey, which is to come. This is the journey to meet God which we talked about earlier mm-hmm. to have communion with him and preserve the people from death, right? Firstborn of yeah. Egypt yeah. to life, Israel coming forth from, um, from Egypt, hmm. uh, free them from slavery uh, for worship. And so the Passover, the blood of the Passover lamb um, the sacrifice of the, sa- the Passover lamb is a movement from death to life, right? This is the idea of Passover. It is the Passover then that Jesus enters into. Being the lamb of God, he is going to pass from death to life. Yes, mm-hmm. he is going to pass from the old world to the new. He is going to take our human nature from the tomb to the resurrection. Okay, so he is going to be our Passover lamb. And here is the first time he goes up to Jerusalem in the Gospel of John. Let's see, I have plenty to say about this, Andy, but maybe you have questions. Well, the other thing that I wanted to kind of understand a little bit better is the temple itself. Sure. Why Jesus seems so protective of the temple. Yeah, well... And maybe we're getting, okay, can we ask that question in a second, Annie? Because I want to just contextualize a little bit more rather than when we go right into the temple. Let's just back up just a little bit and look at verse 12. Okay. Because in verse 12, it says, well, let's look at actually chapter two, verse one, the -hmm. wedding at Cana. Yes. Just before that, the calling of the disciples at the Jordan River, Mm -hmm. the baptism of the Lord. Okay. And so you have the baptism of the Lord text from verse chapter 1, verse 19. That's the first verse after the prologue, all the way through 51. Mm-hmm. And chapter 2, verse 1 begins the wedding at Cana. Right. Right down. Then it says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brethren and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. So I, I want to just point that out to you because we've been looking at Mark. And I think we do well to turn our Bibles to mark because we've been doing this trying to kind of get our bearings yeah mark chapter one we have verse nine is the baptism of the lord and in verse 16 
and passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. In verse 21, he went to Capernaum. So we're going to do just a little bit of geography here for ourselves, because here in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes this journey up to Capernaum. He then, in John, returns to Jerusalem. He then begins to travel again and makes his, in John, and makes his way into Samaria. And uh, in Samaria, chapter 4, he meets the Samaritan woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in, and then continues on chapter five, he goes back to Jerusalem for the feast. So here it's hard to piece together John and the synoptics, but we can do the best we can, which is you have, we're going to pull up a map here. Okay. And pull up the map where you, now you see the sea of Galilee, you see the Jordan river, you see the dead sea and you see uh, Jericho. Yes. And it's right West of Jericho, right here, the top of the Red Sea is the place of the baptism of the Lord. And of course, right above Jericho, we showed you before a couple of weeks ago, is the monastery, the temptation, the area where the temptation took place of 40 days in the desert, right? Right. And then it says that, uh, and now I'm coming, I'm holding my hand in Mark. I'm coming back to John because John's going to add a few things here to our storyline it's going to say that he after the baptism he goes and he goes to cana now we're going to pull up this a new map now and you're going to see where cana of galilee is in comparison to the sea of galilee so he's gone all the way up north he's gone to cana yes Mm -hmm. and then it says after this he went to capernaum Notice Capernaum is on the sea right here along the, along the coast of, of, of the Sea of Galilee. He comes over here. Then, okay, and then we know from Mark that he calls the disciples in verse um, uh, 16 and following. Chapter 1, verse 16 and following. Okay, do you see that? Yeah. He then goes back down now oh you maybe there's something one more point to point out and that is in chat in john chapter 2 verse 11 this is the first of his signs jesus did at canaan galilee and man of his glory to his disciples or his disciples believed in him right right so so there's this is this moment in which there's the calling of the disciples but he's already got disciples with him he's called them down in the jordan river right with john but then he's journeyed up to cana He's got his his mothers with him there. They then come over to Capernaum. They've got this the uh, the healings and the, all that that take place in Capernaum. He goes back down to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and it's there then that this whole thing uh, takes place where he goes into the temple. Okay, now you had a question about the temple. Yeah, and what was your question again? Just why it's so important to Jesus that he's getting angry about all this. The temple is uh, the meeting place, you know, just as the tent was the meeting place, just as Israel was called out of Egypt to meet God. So the tent becomes this traveling uh, house of the Lord, this traveling meeting place between God and man, this traveling place where man might worship God. It's important to understand that Jerusalem is like is seen by the Jews as a microcosm that is a, a, a cosmos in miniature, right? Mm-hmm. 
And the temple itself is the microcosm of the microcosm. And the Holy of Holies is the microcosm, 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 right? Yeah. The universe is supposed to be, the whole of creation is supposed to be the meeting place between God and man. We read that in Romans chapter one, um, that we were to be drawn up to God. Verse 20, chapter one, verse 20, Romans chapter one, verse 20. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So the whole of creation is supposed to be revelatory for us to meet God. Yeah. This is why the tree of life in the Garden of Eden was to be consumed that we might receive eternal life, the meaning place between God and man. Um, the uh, paradise then, paradise is the beginning of what all of creation is meant to be. But all of creation is supposed to be that way by the tilling and keeping of our first parents, by our work, by the blessing of creation through our hands, those who are made in the image and likeness of God. The one who planted paradise now has made one who is going to make paradise out of everything. He planted the seeding, lets us cultivate it, right? So the temple in Jerusalem, I should say the, the, the garden in paradise is a microcosmos. Um, with the fall then, we have progressive states in which this restoration begins to reveal itself again in the tent of meeting, uh, Mount Sinai, right? The temp tent of meeting, the temple in Jerusalem, and finally, well, finally the church, okay? These are I spoke about this in my talk of talk I gave many, 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 many years ago. The audio is horrible on it, but it's good stuff called Eden to Eden, Garden, the temple, and the Catholic Church. You can go look it up. Eden to Eden, the temple, the garden, the temple, and the Catholic Church, where you can see, uh, can learn about some of this, this stuff. The temple, therefore, is the central point from which man is to receive the life of God. It is truly the house of God on earth. It is heaven on earth. Now, because of our sin, this place of meeting becomes compromised. Mm -hmm. The garden becomes compromised, if you will. Jesus is coming to restore the microcosm so that the cosm, the cosmos, can then be restored through mankind. That we might live out his image and likeness and restore the whole of creation, divinize the whole of creation. This is why the priest at the altar takes bread and wine and divinizes them because he's doing what Jesus began to do. Well, by taking on human nature and by going to the temple and cleansing the temple, right? The temple must be the first place in which the cleansing takes place so that the whole of the cosmos might be cleansed. Hmm. Okay. So what's this business about it being the temple of his body? that he's talking about well again you're getting ahead of the business because here jesus goes in and what does he do he drives out the money changers can we just talk you go spiritual on me annie okay, let's just I'm talk sorry. the basics at first all right yeah, you're going go like it. that was like that was like going to the final chapter <laughs> i've always been someone that tried to look ahead i'm a yeah well i'm not verse 14 let's do it in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep, pigeons and money changers at their business. Well, what business is supposed to be going on in the temple, Annie? Worship. Worship. The meeting and, of God and man. You and, you, and, 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 
And you might say, well, in order to worship, didn't God say they have to have all this stuff? So there they are. There's the money change, right? You can't have, you can't have pagan or, you know, Roman money in the house of God. You got to have temple money. So they've got to do the exchange of that. Then they've got to use the temple money to purchase all of the things that the Levitical law says they have to have to worship. So what's wrong with what's going on? I mean, geez, what is it, a carry a cow from, you know, from uh, Galilee all the way down to the thing? It's impossible. So they got to go to the temple and they got to get their stuff to worship with. That is the law that they have to do. Yes, but the problem is what's taking place. And what's taking place is that the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, have taken the place which is dedicated to the worship of God. And rather than selling, you know, set, rather than setting up the vending machine outside the, the church, they just moved the vending machine inside the church, right? Uh, I don't know. The, it's not a really good analogy. The better analogy would be this. Instead of setting up the vending machine outside the gymnasium, they set it up in the middle of the basketball court. So you can't play basketball no. with the with the vending machine inside, can you? No, I think that's a bad analogy too. If the vending machine were selling basketballs, that might work out better. (laughs) Anyways, that's what's going on. They'd set up the money changers inside the temple precincts. Well, what's inside the temple precincts is the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, right? And these are the areas they had set up, most likely in the court of the Gentiles, taken up the court of the Gentiles to make use of this place for the exchange of these goods so that not only the people could have what they needed, but maybe more importantly, they keep the stinking the Gentiles, Gentiles couldn't get into their church. They couldn't get into the place to worship God. And so they, the whole purpose, of course, of the life of the Jews, just as much as the life of the temple, right? The temple is the microcosm. It, it's not the cosmos It's the microcosm. It's the seed. It's paradise. But the whole purpose of paradise is that it's to extend upon the whole world. The purpose of the calling of the Jews was that they might be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations. Not ones who cast them out, but those who bring them Mm -hmm. in. This is what... This is what it's a nice little kind of little Navarre Bible commentary that I've held on to oh, for a nice, while. Yeah. It's kind of nice. This is this is what it says in uh, on this text. Every Israelite had to offer a Passover sacrifice, an ox or sheep, if he was wealthy, or two turtle doves, or two pigeons, if he was not. Leviticus 5:7. In addition, he had to pay a half shekel every year. The half shekel, which was equivalent to a day's pay of a worker, was a special coin, also called temple money. Other coins in circulation, denarii, drachmas, were considered impure because they bore the image of of pagan rulers. During the Passover, because of the extra crowd, the outer courtyard of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, was full of traitors, money changers, etc. And inevitably this meant noise, shouting, bellowing, manure, etc., Prophets had already fulminated against these abuses, which grew up with a tacit permission of the temple authorities who made money by permitting trading. Okay, so there you have it. They they have, in a sense, uh, made uh, what thrown off their entire identity. 
They've rejected their identity as to be a light to the nations. And so the Messiah, Jesus, comes in and does what the Messiah was prophesied to do when he entered into the temple. And that is, he's to go in and make it right. He's to get rid of the impurities that are existing because of our fallen human nature in paradise. Yeah? Turn your Bibles with me to the prophet Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah, right before Malachi, which is right before uh, Maccabees, okay? Zechariah chapter 14, verse 20. Are you with me? Zechariah 14, 20. Are you with me, Annie? Yeah, I went Matthew to Malachi to Zechariah. Yeah, you skipped Maccabees. Okay. Oh, I'm, Maccabees is in a different spot in my Bible. Chapter four. Okay, chapter 14, verse 20. On that day, stop. When the prophets say on that day, that's when the Messiah comes. Okay? When everything's made right. On that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be sacred to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil flesh of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Mm-hmm. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Behold, that was like one page over, okay. Behold, I send you my messenger to prepare the way of the Lord before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into the temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you shall lie, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when, when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify, a, a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver till they present right offerings to the Lord. So this is, look, Jesus, this is what Jesus being prophet, the Messiah, when he comes, this is what he's going to do. He's going to go and he's going to cleanse the temple. He's going to cleanse the priests who are all out there. Disaster. Okay. <laughs> I think it's very applicable to our day. Okay. So this yeah, is what Jesus real. is going to do. This is why he does it. And then. Can I ask one more thing about. So like as we're just kind of going through this in order. Why do the Jews ask him for a sign? Yeah, say, what because, sign can you show us for doing this? Yeah, good, 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 good. I, I, this is this is uh, very interesting and and way more in depth than we need to go to at this moment with the time we have. However, I will tell you that that question regarding the sign is the key that unlocks the entire Gospel of John. The entire Gospel of John will be a repetition of that question. Mm -hmm. What sign? And in fact, we just come down here to chapter 3, which is where we're going to have to finish this little, uh, little hobby horse on this whole human nature business or humankind, whatever they said in the, in, in the NAB. Look at what, what uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a... What did you say? Okay, what was your translation, Annie? He did the not NAB. need anyone to testify about human nature. He okay, I'm going to keep reading because the Greek word's the same. Ready? See how this, how you like this. Now, there was a human nature of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This human nature came to Jesus by night. Okay, come on. There's a reason I'm going to talk to you about in a minute why it says 
There it says man there. Okay. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs. Okay. Mm. There you go. It's all about the signs and those who see the signs and those who don't. Those who think they see the signs and those who don't. Those who become blind to the signs and those who don't. For Jesus has just done a sign, has he not? He has just transfer, transformed water into wine. Has he not? Yeah. Okay. And these guys have been asking the question of John the Baptist in the context of this thing. Are you the prophet? Are you the one who's going to come? And we've talked about this. Are you the prophet who's sent from God? Are you the new Moses? Because they expect the Messiah is going to come and be like the new Moses, right? Because Moses said that God's going to send another one like him. And when he does, when he does, the people of God are going to listen to them. So they expect the Messiah to come and be like a new Moses, right? Well, what was the first sign that Moses did to free Israel from slavery to Egypt? He turns the water of the Nile into blood. blood jesus comes and the first sign he does is wow. exactly the same sign of sense right especially for us catholics full believers understand the sign of wine it's not yeah. only a sign of water it's a sign of wine which is a sign of blood which is his blood right so wow. there's a whole the, the 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 wedding at cana is very very messianic in this in the looking forward to the eucharist okay my mind is blown right now well keep going okay yeah, it's good stuff, right? This wow. is really, it's very interesting. What sign do you have? Well, the, the problem is they didn't, not only did they not see the sign at Cana, which you say, okay, but he's up there in the Cana galley. No, they're not there. They don't know what's going on. Yeah. But the very sign he's doing is the sign that Malachi and Zechariah prophesied the Messiah would do. You with me? Okay, yeah. so they themselves are missing the whole, they, they can't, they don't know who he is. They can't see him for who he is. And yet, notice how this whole thing is going to progress. Check, check this out. What sign do you have to show us for doing this? Verse 19, Jesus answers them, destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, now you got you to gotta realize how offensive this statement was to them. This is not, we read this, right? Okay. Yeah. They're going to bring this moment up at his trial, right? Oh, right. Remember? Yeah. He said he would destroy this temple. In three days, he would rebuild it. They bring this moment up at his passion as the reason why he should be killed. Okay. So this moment, the first, the first, like, contentious moment between him and the Jewish authorities, they're harboring this one big time from, from the moment of the wedding at Cana when, and we don't have time to go there, the reason why John does this, but the moment of the wedding at Cana, when, she, when Jesus and the woman come to an agreement at a wedding, okay, John's of course starting his gospel in the beginning. So he's thinking about the fall. He's thinking about creation. He's thinking about solving that problem once jesus does that jesus covenants himself to the woman from that point the whole gospel spirals towards the cross it has to because he's not fighting just against earthly rulers not getting the rulers of the jews fighting against the devil himself yes and now coming out of that immediately he goes to the temple and now this whole thing comes 
comes out, which will come back at the moment of the cross, right? At the the passion, right? It is trial. And so very important that they're harboring this sign because they themselves are judged by this sign. And yet they themselves will not admit the sign value. They know it. They know it. But they won't admit it. And now watch how the how the text progresses. Jesus answered him, destroy this temple and the three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will raise it up in three days. But he spoke of the temple of his body. Again, this is another one of those things where Jesus is talking here and they're understanding him here. They're missing. They're not able to see. They're not able to understand. They don't understand his words. They don't understand the point he's making. Okay. And 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 you you started with what is the temple, the body, what is all this? Well, yeah, the temple is the location in which God and man come together. It's the meeting place. Jesus right. is that meeting place, not built out of stone, but built out of flesh. He is the living temple of the living God. This is why it is into him that we are to be baptized. It is into him that we find true worship. Yeah who will worship not in Jerusalem or on this mountain, but in spirit and in truth, because Jesus is the enfleshment of that spirit and truth. But now, but he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, as he's turning over the temples, many believed in the Greek word, the word the, the, the word for belief here, to entrust oneself. The, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Hmm. When they saw the sign which he did, they entrusted themselves to him. But Jesus did not believe himself, same Greek word, entrust himself to them because because he knew all men he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man for he himself knew what was in man now there was a man mm-hmm. of the pharisees who thought he knew who jesus was because he thought he understood the signs of which Jesus did, but he did not. This is why you can't translate it as humankind so as to appease the women who believe that it's exiling them to say something about man versus humankind, which is a more embracing and inclusive term. I hate inclusiveness. because it destroys the bible it destroys the whole text and its progression in the text okay there we have it wow have mercy i got a little bit too many hobby horses today all right well what do you think the church is trying to have us consider this third week of lent yeah i think the church is placing before us the the um fundamental theme of uh, of worship in spirit and in truth And I think the church is reminding us that we need to be cleansed of our attachments to this world, Mm. the slavery of Egypt, and prepare ourselves. If you read Exodus chapter 19, let's, let's, let's look, let's just, we got to very quick and we got to move on and we got to be done, right? Mm. Look at Exodus chapter 19, right before our passage. 
because it says it all. It says it all. Chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19, verse 15. And he said to the people, be ready by the third day. Here it says, do not go near a woman. In other words, don't have sexual relations. Okay, look at look at verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain of the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. He said, get ready. Get ready. Purify yourselves. Yeah. Start fasting from your from your passions. Fast from, you know, even say right here from food and from and stop. Put all your foreign gods behind you and get ready to meet the Lord because Pascha is coming. Easter's coming, guys. Get ready to meet the Lord. Cleanse the temple of your soul from your attachments to these worldly things so that the Lord might come and find you a people prepared. That's what I do think the church is focusing on. That's why it's so important that we prepare ourselves for these gospel reflections uh, at the Institute of Catholic Culture so that we are ready for Sunday worship in spirit and in truth. Very quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I don't know about you. This this Bible, Bible study has been all over the place, but it's been a lot of fun. It's been epic. Chapter yeah. 1. Chapter 1, verse 22. Verse 22. All right, here we go. Yeah, Brothers and sisters, Jews demand signs and Greeks <laughs> look for wisdom. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> go it's ahead. Good, good. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called Jew, who, but to those who are called Jews and Greeks alike, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God mm. is stronger than human strength. Yeah, I mean, we can just go back to the Book of Exodus and Israel in in uh, in bondage. And how foolish it looked for them to leave. And he said, well, we have slavery. We know, but it's because you know the end of the story, right? And how, how you know, this is our human nature, right? How often we've heard horrible, nasty, terrible, terrible stories. Uh, people today that are taken into the slave trade. And I don't need to go over. There might be children listening. I won't go further. But when they are discovered and offered freedom, they they oftentimes end up in this, this situation. They can't get themselves out of their slave-master yeah. relationship. I think I've said enough. I think you guys all know what I'm talking about. This is Egypt, and it's yearning for this. Sorry, this is Israel, and it's yearning for Egypt. And it's us in our yearning for the old ways of life. But Lent is our time to journey to Sinai. It's our time to journey to the Holy Land and meet the Lord. It's our time to journey to the temple of God, to Christ crucified. Yeah. Foolishness. A dead man on a cross? There's nothing worse. But to we who have given, been given the gift of the vision... Yeah, who can see the sign, realize that it is a sign of love. And love is always the giving of our life to the beloved. 
For in the cross, Jesus has poured out his life to us that we, in him, might find the third day resurrection. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and to ages of ages. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.